baptism is a, uh, something that God requires of you afterward. And, and I just want to clarify this. I know sometimes people get confused, and I've heard this often when I ask somebody, it's like, hey, do you, do you want to get baptized? And I usually will hear something along the lines of, I just don't think I'm ready. And with all due respect, that also means you don't think you're saved. Because if you know that you're saved, then you need to know that you're ready. Because in the scripture, over and over again, people got baptized right after they said yes. And so we don't see anywhere in scripture where it says they got saved and then they like studied for like four years at a really good college and then they elevated in status and nature and then they got to this really high level and then we baptized them. No, no, the scripture is clear. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, then you are saved. And if that is true, then all baptism is, is a physical demonstration of an inward decision. And it's something that as a church, we get to celebrate. And, and I'm saying all that uh, because it's important for you to understand baptism. And, and listen, you don't have to get baptized multiple times because like I said, it's symbolic, right? So you did it once, that's enough. But from now on again, people want to do it, especially in special occasions. And I'm not going to lie, I took advantage of a special occasion. And like I mentioned, I was in Israel. And when you're in Israel, hey, the Jordan River's right there, right? That's where Jesus got baptized. And so uh, our group had an opportunity to go and get baptized in the Jordan River. And uh, I had a very, very humbling honor and privilege where about four of the pastors on the trip, kind of individual, I don't know if they got together, but individually asked me if I would baptize them. And I was like, absolutely. That was, to me, an even greater honor than being baptized because, again, I already did it. Um, but I just want to show you a couple of pictures real quick because anytime someone goes on a trip, they got to show you pictures. And I want you to see, this is uh, me baptizing a few of the guys in the Jordan River or just me on screen there. Oh, that's your boy right afterward. Look at the holiness. Do you see the dove? It's, I don't know, that might be a dove in the background or a pigeon, but it's, Holy Spirit is upon me. And so that was me right after. That was me baptizing my friend Ashton, pastor in Springfield. And then uh, I, that's me baptizing my friend Eddie Nesby, a pastor in New Mexico. Uh, and then I baptized a couple other guys, this young man and my friend Austin. And, and then I told them, well, listen, if, if I baptize y'all, I need the three of you guys to baptize me. And so here's a quick video, so 20 seconds. Um, I ain't gonna lie, that water is cold. I was happy. I was cold also. Very happy to get out of the water, but also happy to be baptized. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. It was a cool moment. They give you this like white robe. You know, it was kind of a rush thing. But just to be really transparent, I remember when I got there, the first time I saw the Jordan River, my immediate thought was, wow, that's dirty. That's like an ugly river. It reminded me like, I was like, I can get, like, it's like getting baptized in the displays. You know what I mean? Like, like in flood season is kind of gross. And then, and then what really killed the moment for me, if I could just be honest, is, you know, it's kind of like these nice little things that they built around it where you can walk down the steps and you go into the river. But if you look to your left, there's um, a street and like an underpass and like the water's coming out of the underpass. So it really does feel like you're getting baptized in the displays, like you're just going over Grand Avenue and there's the displays and it's like dead bodies floating out of there. And I was just like, this is kind of not as magical as I thought it would be in the moment as I was looking at it. And so when I thought that, I realized, and I just remembered uh, just a portion of scripture that I want to talk to you about found in 2 Kings about a man 
who also found himself in the Jordan River, a man by the name of Naaman. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up to 2 Kings chapter 5. And uh, I'm going to read the story. It's a, a few verses, about 15 verses. I know that's long for what we normally do, but I really want you to see the whole story. And then we're going to take some time to break down uh, a lot of this. So if you have your Bibles, verses 1 through 15, just follow along with me. If not, you can look at the Bible in the sky. <laughs> it says, the king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him, the Lord had given Aram great victories. Now, if you're not paying attention, Aram is not Israel, okay? So this is not the people of God. This is actually the enemy of Israel. It says, but through Naaman, he was a mighty warrior. He suffered from, I'm sorry, but though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. For those of you who don't know, leprosy is a flesh-eating disease. Uh, it's a very horrible, horrible disease that starts with spots and then grows into like white scales. Eventually, limbs fall off, fingers fall off, uh, teeth fall out, eyes fall out, everything falls out until eventually you die. And so with all his accolades, he ends up having leprosy. At this time, uh, Aramean, I'm sorry, uh, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid, or really a slave. One day, the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. She's talking about the prophet of Israel named Elijah. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told them. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing, which by the way, in today's equivalent, he walked over there with a few million dollars. It says in the Bible that the letter of the king of Israel said, with this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, am I God that I can give life and take away? Again, just for context sake, the king was not on good terms with God and he didn't even have a relationship with Elijah. So there's no wonder he's freaking out right now. Not only is he not God, but he don't have a connection with God. And so he goes on to say, I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me, meaning the rival kingdom. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me and he will learn that there was a true prophet here in Israel. I love when the Bible throws a little bit of shade, just, just a little bit. It's like, hey, why are you scared, king? Let me show you that there's a real God in this place. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elijah's house. But Elijah sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, Abana, and Farpar better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, Go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. 
Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him and Naaman said, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept this gift from your servant. I want you to understand something about this man, Naaman. He was the commander of a mighty army. The Bible describes him as a great warrior. As a matter of fact, this is the only non-Israelite to ever be described this way in the Bible, as a mighty warrior. Some translations say, as a man of valor. This was a term that was also used for Gideon. Right? But we don't see anywhere else outside of this man, a non-Israelite using a term, or God using a term to describe him like he's describing Amen. He's a mighty warrior. He had great victories but he faces the greatest battle of his life. And it's not against a foreign force, and it's not against a military weapon. It's not even against another person or even leprosy. This is not his greatest fight right now. His greatest battle of his life that he's about to enter is a fight with himself. Guys, I would argue that our biggest battles in life are not against the devil, are not against temptation, are not against this world, but against ourselves. Oftentimes, we are our biggest and worst enemy. Here, we see Naaman have to overcome a few selves, if I would say, in order to get what God had for him. And if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down because I think it's some of the same selves that you and I might struggle with. And the first one is this. He had to fight self-pride. <laughs> self-pride, why? Think about it. Naaman, he comes to Elijah with status right? He comes with chariots and horses. In other words, he's showing off his, his social status. I didn't just ride up in my bike, right? I came in here with an entourage. He shows up with millions in silver and gold, showing off his financial status. I'm not some pauper on the street begging. He comes with recommendations from two kings, showing that he has political status. So he's got political status, financial status, social status, and Elijah doesn't even bother to go out and greet Naaman himself. Now listen, in, in most cases, I think we would consider this rude, right? This guy goes all this way to meet Elijah and Elijah sends a messenger. That would be like, you have this very, very big need and, and you call the church like, hey, can I, please, can I please speak to the pastor? And I go, well, here's a youth leader you can talk to. And many of us would get upset. But listen, here's the reality of what I believe Elijah's trying to teach that in humility, we understand it's not a person, but God that helps us. He's coming to Elijah when Elijah's just a messenger, no different than the messenger he sent. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is a messenger, not God. He is used by God, or she is used by God to do the things of God, but they are not God in and of themselves. And so oftentimes what God will do is he'll set up situations when pride is in the way in order to lower our status and humble us in a way that now he can use us. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 23 reminds us of that. It said, pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. <clears throat> I love this translation because of the word low. Pride is what brings you low, but it's when you're lowly in spirit that you can gain honor, right? God oftentimes has to get you to a point where he can help you. But some of us, because we're our own worst enemy, because of pride, God can't help us because we're too busy trying to help ourselves. We're too busy trying to figure it out on our own. In other words, the proud will be torn down and humbled, but the humble will be lifted up. 
I've always thought about it in this way. Either I humble myself or God will humble me. And the way often God humbles you is humiliating, is embarrassing, makes you angry like it did Naaman. Why is he angry? Because he just got humbled. Because he just got checked. This is a commander. This is a person in charge of people, used to getting his way. Before Naaman could be lifted up and healed, he had to be brought down a few pegs. And if we can be honest, many of us have lost much because of self-pride in the same way. Can I be real with you for a minute? This, this might hurt or sting some of you, but just bear with me. Some of us has affected our relationship with the church. I think a lot of times we've confused church hurt with loving correction. Well, you know, the church, they, were, they did this to me, they did that to me. No, you sinned. The church in love confronted your sin. You got embarrassed, angry, and left that church. I'm not trying to be mean. And listen, if that's your story here, listen, I'm not saying you got to leave or anything like that. But let's be honest. Those, the Bible is very clear that those who love correction are smart, are wise. But a fool hates being rebuked. And, and a lot of times it's because it's not that the church hurts you, it's that God hurts your pride. God, God told you something that you didn't like to hear. Or oftentimes I've seen this where people get offended and angry and even leave a church because, well, the pastor forgot my birthday. Or the pastor didn't reach out to me specifically. Or the pastor didn't write me this. I'm being very transparent with you. I am very honored and privileged to be your pastor. But there is a lot of you. I don't even like looking at Facebook notifications anymore when it comes to birthdays. I'm just, I can't keep up. It's every day, like 19 birthdays, you know? Some days I'm just counting nine months back. I'm like, what happened? What was that? Like everybody's birthdays today. And so sometimes we get mad because one individual didn't remember your specific need. But here's the reality. No pastor is God. And nor should a pastor be lifted up to the status of a God where you're somehow disappointed because he didn't do what only God can do sometimes. And I'm, don't get me wrong, there are instances where the church has hurt and where pastors have failed and where situations have gone out, but a good amount of opportunities or times I've seen, it's people who are petty and have allowed their pride to be wounded and now walk away embarrassed and angry because it's easier to blame the church or the individual than to accept that maybe, just maybe, you were wrong. Or here's my favorite one why people leave the church oftentimes. Well, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, show me a place that isn't. The church is a hospital. That would be like getting mad. Oh, that hospital is full of sick people. Yeah, that was the point. <laughs> That's why we built it. <laughs> the church is going to have people that are struggling, that are going back and forth. Where the pride kicks in is where you act like you don't have hypocrisy in your life. Where you've never messed up. Where you've never gone out of your way and messed up and struggled and gone back to God. That's the part, again, that's like someone in the hospital who is sick getting mad at other people who are sick. No, 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 that's, that's not how it should be. That's pride getting in the way of God trying to heal you, restore you, help you. Listen, this isn't even just with the church. This happens with relationships, right? Some of us have lost relationships because of our pride. I refuse to be the first to apologize. Why? That's the quickest way to the end of this. Well, I'm not the one who did anything. Who cares? Listen, if, I've, I ain't even gonna lie. There are so many times I've apologized when I know it's not my fault because it's just quicker. It's just easier. Hey, if that's what you need, hey, listen, I am sorry I offended you. I didn't mean to do that. I won't do that again. I apologize. 
Okay, all right, good, we're done. Yeah. Instead of, well, I wasn't wrong, you were wrong. And now we get back and forth and everyone gets angry and everyone gets back and forth and nothing ever gets resolved. And you're still mad at the person. You ever had that where you're still mad at your spouse three, four, five weeks later and you don't even remember what the fight was about? I have no idea why I'm mad at you, but I know I'm still mad. Well, why? I don't know, but they did something. Listen, it's pride. That's the only thing that's stopping you from restoring that relationship with that loved one. Well, I haven't talked to that family member in 15 years. Pride has robbed you of 15 years of relationship. Why would you let it rob you of another day? Well, you don't know what they did. Does it matter? Has God forgiven you? Has God forgiven them? Then you move forward and you try to restore what you can. Don't allow pride to prevent you from living the life that God has called you to live. And here's the problem. What pride does if you don't win that battle is we end up convincing ourselves that we're justified. Why? Because it makes sense to us. Because of our own reasoning. And if you're taking notes, the second battle we often fight is self-reasoning. We can convince ourselves of anything. We're really good at that. Naaman was convinced he knew better. After all, he was used to being the one with all the answers, telling his subordinates what to do. In his mind, Elijah should have come out himself. Elijah should have stood in front of me and should have waved his hand over my leprosy. He should have called on the name of this God. It should have been this really big spectacle. You know, pastor should have called me up, anointed me with oil, had the whole church lay hands on me. Like that's how it's supposed to happen. But listen, Proverbs 14, 12 reminds us there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Just because it seems like the right way doesn't mean that it's God's way. And oftentimes we have convinced ourselves that the only way God's gonna move is through the way that I think it should happen, is in the manner that I think it should occur. Even if the solution was dipping in a river, Naaman had better reasoning for that too, right? The rivers of Damascus, of Abana, these are better rivers of my homeland than this dirty river in Jordan. And again, I can attest to Naaman, it was filthy. It was a dirty, cold river. It was not a very beautiful, tranquil place. So he has logical reasoning and it makes sense. Logically, it makes sense. But if you haven't served God long enough, then you don't understand that God doesn't like to go by your logic because your logic is so limited. You can't even make your own heartbeat. You can't even stop yourself from blinking. Like your logic is not that great. Isaiah 55 verse eight through nine reminds us of that. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. See, we even second guess God when we think what we believe makes more sense. Can you just think about that just for a moment? Because we do it, we just don't think about it in the moment. We second guess God because we think we know better. But this makes more sense, God. This will make me more happy, God, so this is what you should do. Oh, God would never do this. How do you know? Because God knows my heart. What does that have to do with what God wants to do? (laughs) The Bible says he knows your heart and that it's wicked beyond measure and no one can understand it. So why is God gonna listen to your heart? Well, here's, uh, I don't receive that, pastor. That don't matter. He's still gonna leave it on your doorstep. (laughs) Whether you receive it or not, package delivered. We need to get to a point where we understand that we don't understand everything. 
And there are some things that in the moment you're not gonna get. In the moment, this makes no sense. But can we just, can we just do this for a moment? Think back, how many times in your past have you gone, oh, yeah, I get it. How many times, if you look back, you're like, I didn't get it then, God. Now I get it. In my ignorance, I didn't understand, but because God sees the end from the beginning, he sees the full picture, he has a greater view of what's going on, a greater understanding of why he's doing what he's doing. And then we finally eventually get to a point where we turn around and we go, oh, that, now it makes sense. <laughs> and God's like, listen, I don't make sense, I make miracles. And sometimes miracles don't make sense. Naaman got so mad that he almost missed it all. You ever been so mad you ever lost everything? Not only did he have to deal with self-pride and self-reasoning, but he had to overcome that last one, self-destruction. Some of us, when we don't get our way, we self-destruct. When things don't happen the way we think they should happen, we self-destruct. The Bible tells us that Naaman turned and went away in a rage. Thank God he had servants who weren't afraid to speak truth to Naaman, even when he was mad. Proverbs 27, verse five through six. An open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. This is why God establishes the church like he does. We need people in our lives. No one was meant to be on this alone. We need somebody that's gonna love us enough to tell you your zipper's down. That's gonna love you enough to tell you there's a booger in your nose. That's gonna love you enough to tell you the way you spoke to your wife earlier, that was inappropriate. You disrespected her. Hey, listen, I, I'm not here. I'm not trying to raise your kids, but I just need you to know that your student often, or your child, my student often comes up to me thinking you don't care about them because of the way you talk to them. And listen, for all the years I've been in youth ministry, that's a hard conversation to have with a parent. But parent, wouldn't you want to know how your kid feels, even if that's not what you meant? even if that's not what you thought. Imagine if Naaman went on his journey alone. Imagine if he didn't have those officers with him. That's why God has created us for community, for those times where we feel like self-destructing, someone comes and takes our finger off the button. You heard the cheers that happened when I got lifted out of the water in the Jordan. I imagine his servants had amazing joy each time he dipped out of the water. Remember, the Bible says he did it seven times I wonder if that first time was probably hard, but then maybe there was a little bit of progress, right? Dipped once, one of the scales fell off. Dipped twice, his, his hand became clear. Dipped the third time, his arm is clear. Dipped the fourth time, his chest is clear. Dipped the, and every time, there's celebration from his officers. Sitting there going, yes, master, keep going. It's working, it's working, it's working. And Naaman just hurrying up to get in and out, to get in and out, to get in and out. Listen, if I was by myself, that first dip might have been my only dip. I would have tried it and thought it didn't work. Never mind the fact that I was told to do it seven times. Every dip, there was a celebration. And by the way, in a minute, as we get ready to baptize these individuals, I really hope, church, you celebrate with every dip. I really hope you remind our people who are really nervous and every person is always nervous and that's the other big reason why they don't wanna get baptized is you know, I'm nervous to be in front of all the people. We need to remind them this is family and in family we celebrate those victories, we celebrate those moments and we cheer you on. Worship team, if you can help me out. Name and with all his credentials and accomplishments and gifting, 
came to learn one more very important lesson. One more self that I think many of us battle with. And that is he had to learn that he cannot be completely self-sufficient. He can't be self-sufficient. Self-sufficient is when you feel like you don't need anybody else. Just me, myself, and I. He needed to trust a young girl's testimony in his house. He needed a letter of recommendation from his king. He needed an introduction from Israel's king. He needed a word from Elijah. He needed a messenger to deliver that word. He needed faithful servants to confront him even when he was angry. He needed things outside of himself. And even more importantly, he learned that he needs God. Second Kings chapter five, verse 17. Then Naaman said, all right, but please allow me to, lead, to load two of my mules with earth from this place and I will take you back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to any other God except the Lord. Naaman had to fight himself to get to God. It wasn't demons, wasn't sickness, wasn't people. He had to fight himself to get to the point of understanding that he can't do life by himself. With all his accolades and all his achievements, it wasn't good enough to stop that. And listen, with all the money you got and all the achievements you made and all the degrees you might have and family you have and all these things that we often fight and scrape for, at the end of the day, you can't take any of that with you. Each of us will stand completely alone before the throne of grace and we will have to be held accountable for the life that we lived while on this earth. But what I love about my God is he doesn't hold your past against you. Think about this with Naaman. He's a Gentile, right? Meaning he's not a part of God's story, especially in the Old Testament. He's not a part of God's story. He's not a part of the chosen, right? He's not an Israelite. He's a Gentile. Matter of fact, not only is he a Gentile, he's a commander of an enemy's army. So this is an enemy of God in all respects. But here's the truth. Each of us and all of us at one point were enemies of God. Deserving to be wiped out like any enemy would. And in Romans 5, verse 9 through 11, we're reminded, and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Stand up with me if you can. <clears throat> All of us have been or currently are an enemy of God. But God doesn't treat us like an enemy. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died on the cross not just to save you from your sin and your eternal damnation and all that stuff, although, praise God, that's true. But he saved you 
so that he can call you friend, so that he can have a personal relationship with you. And in a moment, I wanna pray in case someone in this place has never made that decision, or if you're honest with yourself, you did a long time ago, but you haven't been living like that. And you need to restore those lost years right now. I'm gonna ask you to bow your head for a moment, close your eyes, this is personal between you and God. And because of our baptism uh, altar team, if you would just make yourself available at the end, after we're done with everything, that'll be the best. But listen to me, young man, young lady, sir, ma'am. This isn't about head knowledge. Most of you in this place, you know about Jesus in your mind. But this is about admitting that you need something greater than yourself on the inside. That there's a God-shaped hole that only Jesus Christ is able to fill. And this is the beginning of a journey. I'm not saying it's gonna be all be figured out in this moment and all of a sudden everything you doubted is gonna make sense. What I'm saying is, are you willing to start a journey of God's revelation in your life? Or on a regular basis, I believe as you continue to seek the Lord, he will continue to reveal his truth to you. And he will continue to show you and answer all the questions you've ever had. And remember the scriptures say, while we were enemies. You don't have to make yourself right in order to get right with God. Right how you are, in your sin, in your struggle, where you are, God wants to make you his. So with every head bowed, every eye closed between you and God, but if you're here and you say, Pastor, I wanna give my life to Christ today. I, I, I wanna dedicate myself afresh and anew. I wanna restore the joy of my salvation. I wanna accept him as my Lord and Savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just lift up your hand and I wanna pray with you in just a moment that God would include you in that. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Anyone else? That's me, pastor. Now's your moment. No one else. Thank you, sir. Thank you, young lady. Anyone else? That's me, pastor. I wanna know that I know that I know that I have a relationship with the living God. I wanna be healed the way Naaman was healed. One more moment, if there's anyone else. Amen. Let me pray. Church, would you pray with us? Say, Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm an enemy, that I don't deserve your salvation. But I thank you, God, that you don't give me what I deserve, but that you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins and make me fresh and new. And so now God, in front of all these people, I acknowledge my sin, I ask for your forgiveness, and I ask for your friendship. I pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen, amen. Come on, would you give God a hand clap of praise for every soul that was saved?